This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luca Levitz Meble. And I'm Yannick Marien. And what's the topic for this week, Yannick? Keeping the spirit of the arcade alive. Ooh, arcade talk again. That's amazing. I mean, I've been going through my usual post-travel depression and I really miss arcades. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I think before we start, you do have some follow-up. Well, not officially follow-up. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank um, the people over at Rogue Amoeba. Uh, we've been having some recording issues uh, over the past few episodes, and they have been immensely helpful over the last few months to help me debug uh, what's wrong with my setup. And hopefully this episode will sound better because of it. Uh, so thanks to them. The next item is not, strictly speaking, follow-up. It is reacting to a piece of news that came out today. Uh, oh, true. It's following news. Yeah, so amazingly enough, we are smarter than all of the other tech podcasters who make their shows on Monday or Wednesday. We record usually on a Thursday. And today, big breaking news, a 9to5Mac managed to track down uh, images on Apple's website of the iPhone XS and the Apple Watch Series 4, and we're going to give our reactions to these uh, leaked products. Um, so why don't you go first? Because oh, you want me to go first? Sure. You're probably okay. going to be more optimistic. Okay. We, we, were, we were already having a small discussion about uh, your complaints about this new uh, leak picture of the apple watch i think uh this season is uh yannick and i's uh buy apple watch buying season yep for the phone i would say like the main uh, the, the main feature of it is it seems that it looks like the iphone 10 it's just that it has a gold finish which on the picture that i'm currently looking at it looks really nice uh Sadly, kind of reminds me i'm eager to see it in person because if it is as good as the uh space black option that was released a couple months after the initial apple watch uh, series zero series zero release i might regret again buying an iphone 10 just because uh at least com if i compare it to what we see on the picture it does look quite good uh so maybe i'll regret buying a first gen new product again but who knows we'll, uh, what we'll see. It seems that they're looking at a, like a plus size for it, the 6.5 inch. Uh, it's quite interesting because uh, Tony just changed his SE for 7 plus recently. Boo. So we have a plus size member now in the family. Uh, and the size difference between the 10 and the plus size is not that big. Um, to me, it feels more or less the same kind of screen space, uh, just to get a bit more. So to see that same screen size, but in a 10 design, uh, seems quite interesting to me. Do you want to go with your comments on the phone first, or I go through all my comments? I mean, my comments about the phone is I don't really have comments on the phone. It's an iPhone 10. That's gold. Congratulations. You did it. Uh, there's a bigger one. The iPhone 10 is already too big for me, so I am not particularly thrilled by the plus option although i was never going to buy a plus option anyway so like you're not losing any sales because you made a plus option um i am worried about the fate of the iphone se um i'm looking forward to seeing if one of the weird rumored lcd phones winds up being the iphone se2 i hope not i hope that the se form factor lives on but i am very very doubtful Okay, let's go to let's go to the Apple Watch series, quote unquote four. 
Um, it seems to me that it's confirming the rumors that we'll get a bigger display. Uh, for that leak photo, I'm unsure if it is like longer and thinner. It seems like it is. Uh, I guess that will be a welcome addition because uh, the next the next few generations after the series, they will gain a bit of thickness, if I recall correctly. Uh, first, first reason was for waterproofing and GPS, and then after that for cellular. Um, so if they're uh, giving uh, giving us a bigger screen and also a thinner watch, that uh, is always nice to have. Uh, it's like when uh, you get the survey about your recent car purchase, and the first question is, do you if you if you would have more space in your car, would you like it? And of course, nobody will say no to that. So um, bigger screen is always nicer, if especially if the size of the watch itself doesn't grow too much, and if it is thinner uh, and, and looks less like a big square on your wrist, that's also uh, nice. Uh, I wasn't afraid that it would happen in this series, but since I there was a lot of rumors about Apple maybe doing something big this uh, season for the Apple Watch, I was a bit afraid that it might break uh, band compatibility, but it was like just a small fear uh, in the back of my mind. I never truly believed it, uh, but looking at those pictures, it seems that it's the same system and that if it is thinner, they're just removing bezels and aluminum on the watch and not uh, attacking the uh, pen mechanism. And that's a good news for me. Okay, so I'm going to start with the good news. The good news is that the stupid red dot is gone from the digital crown, or at least it looks like it. Because... No, it is an outline, so it's it's not fully, like, it's not filled in. It's just that the, uh, I have a bezel. Well, let me ask red. you a trick question. Do you think this is the aluminum model or the stainless steel model? That is a good question. Because if you remember last year's models, uh, the 3G, uh, not 3G, the 4G models, um, the stainless steel model basically had the little dimple uh, that indicated that it was a 3G watch. Yes. And I don't and by that... think this is a stainless steel watch. So maybe it's just the stainless steel one will still have the dot. Uh, yeah, comparing the current pictures on Apple's website. And yeah, the rose gold seems shinier on this photo. I guess we'll see. It yeah. might just be the new, like, sport one uh, and rose gold color and but i wouldn't that's what i'm trying to look at i wouldn't mind more colors for the stainless steel one because uh like uh, like we said yannick and i are in the buying season for this and we're kind of i think i think we're on the same page for that we're planning again to buying a stainless steel one i don't think you were planning to downgrade i mean it will depend what the prices are um, I yeah, would like course. to stay stainless steel if possible, um, but it's it might be really expensive. Yeah. Oh, yes, it will be for sure. Uh, looking at it quickly on Apple's website, it seems that the red temple is Series Three all, all always. Uh, series Three GPS. Yes. Okay. Now I can see it. It's Series Three GPS. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Th- th- this color on the picture is intriguing. Yeah. Because looking at current pictures of rose gold, it seems of a lighter and less shiny uh, look. Well, like this, yeah, this looks like a different color than rose gold to me. Um, because like I have my rose gold one right here, and like 
this practically works brown on the screen right now. Hmm. It's it more like copper-ish. Yeah, brown. Or like copper. chocolate or whatever. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always hard to tell with the lighting in these Apple photos, but we'll find out soon enough. The event is on the 12th, uh, so we'll find out about it. I do need to jam in my complaint about this hideous watch face. <laughs> well, I think this has something to do with the with the invitation, because the invitation is what Circle Around, I think it was called? Gather Around. Gather Around, yeah. And it had this large, well, pretty much like the ring in the digital crown, actually, but like a weird copper-shaped ring or gold-shaped ring. It was, again, hard to tell what color it was because I was on a PC, but... Yes, it reminded me of my Apple Park shirt. It seemed that uh... it was the Apple Park outline because it, like, it was like, I have this shirt. It's just that mine is rainbow, and this one was cop. You know what? You are right. It look, the copper on the invite looks a bit like the copper we've been seeing on those watch. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, the the point I'm trying to make here is because they've gotten rid of the bezels on the Apple Watch, they can now put things around the old watch face. Uh, so whereas before, like the circle of the watch face used to basically graze the sides of the screen, now there's more of a margin around that. So they can actually put things outside the circle and they've put basically four wider complications on the outside. And on the inside of the uh, clock, they've put four round uh, complications as well. So now you can have eight complications on screen while using an analog watch face, which right now you can't do that. Um, and the problem is like, this looks absolutely, I mean, it's dense with information. It distracts a lot. Like it doesn't look, uh, subtle at all. It is very much in your face. Here's a bunch of color in every angle deal with it. And I really find it super ugly. The other thing I'm not quite sure about is they're writing the, uh, the next calendar appointment on the rim of the clock. Uh, which first of all makes the little uh, the little notches in the analog clock disappear, so you don't actually have any reference to where the hands are. You sort of have to guess, uh, which some people aren't going to be bothered by that. I would be bothered by that because I like those little dimples. Um, it's really weird. Uh, it's one of the ugliest things that Apple has made in a long time, and the amazing thing to me is. Like the big argument you keep hearing for why people justify that Apple doesn't allow third party watch faces is because Apple has this feeling that if you allow anybody to design a watch face, they will come up with the most hideous stuff. And I mean, like, if you go to Android customization forums, you know that this is very likely to happen. However, when Apple makes shit like this, you're like, you might as well open the floodgates for the badly designed watch faces because I know a lot of people who have better taste than you guys did to design this. And it really pisses me off that they made something this ugly. Uh, hopefully the other ones are not this ugly. I will be very mad if they are. Good. And I think we'll stop there. You know what? We'll put a link in the show notes about this uh, leak. And it seems that the leak is quite interesting. Maybe like, poking around on Apple's server or like, just by guessing Earl's. It seems also that Apple today was doing some streaming tests. So quite interesting that got, that got found slash leaked the same day that apple announced part, part of me wondered when i saw the story if they were holding on to this until the invites came out because i'm i'm not necessarily sure that this was found because 
of anything that changed on the website today. It might have been on the website for a while and they found it already and they waited for the event to be announced and then they were like, okay, release the floodgates. We can release this now. Um, not sure, but it, I would consider it possible. And I find like the whole meta stuff around these leaks to be quite interesting to look into sometimes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully in next week we will, I guess, con- next episode will comment whether we are planning to buy stuff that will make it co- in the correct timeline for us to have seen the uh, announcement and then have just a small segment like this one before we go to the main topic. Yep. All right. So uh, before I start on what we can do to keep the arcade spirit alive, I guess I sort of need to give a brief update on the state of the arcade industry. We sort of touched on this on a few previous episodes, uh, but the situation has deteriorated quite a bit in the past few years uh, that I believe it's interesting to revisit. Uh, so nothing has really changed in North America. Uh, arcades have been long dead in North America. There was a small renaissance in recent years because arcade era kids uh, have reached an age where they are cashing in on their nostalgia and spending money on things. Uh, so and their stock options. Yeah, and the Bitcoin and all that shit. Um, so people are... Uh, like there was a big craze of barcades uh, not too recently where like they were springing up in all the cities. And I believe you went to one in Montreal uh, not too long ago. And it's just sort of people trying to reminisce about their childhood and building up these arcades in various bars to try and commemorate that, those cool memories. However, what's left of arcade games in North America falls into sort of one of two buckets You've got large, mediocre ports of phone games, which are very embarrassing, to be honest. And then there's, like, games with novelty cabinets that deliver something, an experience you can't really have at home, or that is inconvenient to have at home. And those are sort of the two arcade games that are still being released nowadays in North America. Uh, otherwise, like, you've got, like I said, like, people in, who have retro arcade cabinets and who are setting that up to bring in the nostalgia aspect but otherwise it sort of falls within these buckets if you really take a look at the industry as it operates today it's good for myself and my neighbor and my surroundings that i play time crisis in an arcade and not in my apartment yes probably well it's also very expensive to try and get a full setup that actually works for time crisis at home nowadays oh really oh well you have to track down a crt tv at the minimum oh that's true yeah oh yeah 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 What's also very interesting is the economics of arcades, uh, the ones that are left anyway. Uh, many arcades subsidize the actual arcade games with more profitable entertainment attractions. So in recent years, Round 1, which is a big Japanese arcade, uh, large Japanese arcade chain, uh, opened a bunch of arcades in North America. And they can allow themselves to do this because Round 1 doesn't only have an arcade. They have bowling. They have karaoke. They have batting cages. They have... Uh, some of them have weird soccer uh, fields, indoor soccer fields and stuff. Uh, so they can actually sell these services as well. And then it doesn't matter that the actual arcade portion of the building is not making any money because they have all of this other more profitable stuff to subsidize. Looking outside of Round 1 in specific, outside of the the big chains, the main reason, uh, the main way that arcades stay in business is redemption games. And this is also the main reason that there aren't many arcades in Quebec. Uh, redemption games are all of the weird kinds of 
arcade games you can play that give you tickets that you can trade in trade in for prizes. Uh, these are fairly common outside of Quebec and all of the United States. However, um, this is seen as gambling in uh, Quebec, and our anti-gambling regulation is much stricter than the other provinces is, and that's why we don't have them, and that's why arcades can't be sustainable businesses in Quebec, because most sustain out of those games, uh, which is unfortunate if you like arcades. Now I should move along to how things are going in Japan, and spoiler alert, they're not going so well. Uh, they're vanishing at a startling rate in Japan. Um, the rate has slowed down over the last two years, but only because the past few years have already killed off most of the small independent arcades, so there's just not much bleeding left to do. And the big shift we're seeing in the arcade closures nowadays is that previously it was really just like average independent arcades that didn't stand out from the crowd at all now the arcades that are closing down are start that are starting to close down are big pillars of various games communities uh so a couple years ago pasopiard in uh kamata in tokyo closed down and that was a big arcade for the beatmania 2dx community uh world game circus is closing down uh this month well it's probably already closed by the time you listen to this um and that is another big Beatmania 2DX arcade. Um, there are various arcades like Matt Mouse, which is a big center for the Twinkle Star Sprite scene. That is also closing down this month. So big community pillar, pillar arcades are starting cl to close down. And it's no longer just the small, boring arcades that are closing down. And it's starting to be bigger independent arcades, which is worrisome. The game industry has also sort of morphed like it did in North America. So games are mostly banking on novelty factor that can't be replicated on console, handheld, or mobile games. And this is mostly because uh, while I can allow myself to have six different music game controllers, the average Japanese person lives in a smaller apartment than I do, and therefore they can't really justify having six music game controllers in their living room to play music games every once in a while, so it's much more convenient for them to walk down the block to their local arcade and go play Beat Mania there. Um, Another shift that has happened in the industry in Japan is that there are fewer arcade goers, and that means that games have moved away from strict one credit for per player limits, uh, which we will talk about later on, and towards point systems, which let you spend, let's say, 10 bucks to stay there for an hour and a half or something. Uh, you basically use money to buy time on the machines instead of spending one credit, dying, and then getting off, uh, which is a very different model than what we're used to. And uh, if you're playing like versus fighting games and all that stuff, the likelihood of competition within the same arcade has gone down. So what has actually ended up happening is that most versus games now have online multiplayer. And you're wondering like, well, if there's online multiplayer, there's no real advantage to playing the game in an arcade versus playing it at home, except that sometimes these games come out six months ahead of time in the arcade. So there's that whole dynamic going on as well. So the way I want to structure this episode is I want to talk about single-player games first because they are a very distinct thing from fighting games and other multiplayer games, which we'll look at in the second half of the episode. So single-player games, the general theme around these games is refinement of skill over time. And a lot of these games are developed with what I consider to be the arcade habit built into mind. So this is a common thing in Japan. It's less so here in North America because arcades are dead. 
But the arcade habit is when you're a person who passes by the arcade after work, you maybe play one or three credits, and then you go home. And here, when you tell people, uh, I go to the arcade every day, people think you're nuts. They think, like, you must be a hardcore gamer or whatever. Uh, and they think you're probably spending a ton of money on playing arcade games. Uh, fundamentally, though, if you actually, like, put the facts on paper, uh, people who have this arcade habit are generally spending like one to three dollars a day playing games, and they're playing games for 15 to 45 minutes at a time. And in the grand scheme of things, like we know people who spend all night playing video games, it's me, spoilers, uh, who play for like five hours straight and do the same thing every day of the week. it's not that big a deal really to be spending like $1 a day on gaming and playing for 15 minutes or playing, paying $3 a day and paying, uh, playing 45 minutes. It's even credibly in the range of how much time casual gamers spend playing games every day. Um, so a lot of the games in the arcade business are built around these habits because it was more prevalent in Japan than it, is now and that is one of the things that you're going to have to understand to move into the next point which is the quest for one cc's uh one cc's are a terminology from the shoot 'em up scene it means one credit clears the reason that arcade games are hard is not that they want to milk you for continues every time you play now i've seen you play time crisis you'd like jam those coins in every continue to get through the entire game that's a trap <laughs> continues are a trap The game is only going to get harder from the point where you died, so the likelihood you will die again pretty soon is pretty likely. And in Japan, you generally can't use continues, because it's considered rude to pay for a continue when someone is in line behind you to play anyway. And generally, if you're there like around rush hour time, there's going to be someone else behind you. Oh man, they wouldn't like me at all. No. At all. That I spent too much money playing Time Crisis. I think that that's the recurring goal, I, I, recurring theme, excuse me, that I have this episode. It's just like reminding myself that it might be good that Time Crisis arcade machines are going away because I'll spend less $20 rebels every 15 minutes. And the thing is, like, when you're putting those continues into the machine, you're being more profitable for the arcade operator. Like, they would want you to keep jamming in those continues. But because it's rude, they're not going to let you actually do it anyway, even though they would make more money off of you. So it it's a weird dynamic that they have in Japan that we don't really have here. Uh, and people are generally more rude in general here. Uh, so that's also a thing. So I'm going to let you in on the entire secret of arcade games. The reason arcade games are hard is because they're meant to be played a little bit every day over a longer period of time, and that's why the game needs to present hurdles for you to overcome. And this also applies to retro games like on the NES and stuff, because you couldn't save games necessarily early back then, so you had to make the games short enough that you could beat them in one setting, sitting if you're really good, but you also didn't want them to be easy enough that you take the game out of the box, play it for 25 minutes, and then your 60 bucks has been lit on fire because you beat the game already. Um, so to provide longevity to the game, you need difficulty to go hand in hand with that. And again, because most games in arcades try to be 15 to 25 minutes long at most, just because that's sort of the amount of time that they've considered is optimal for making enough money to actually pay back the arcade machines in a reasonable amount of time. 
that's how things go. So I'm going to talk about these games in as a function of the value you get out of them for the amount you spend in them. To get the most value out of your 100 yen coins or your dollar coins when you play an arcade game, you need to forget about continues and you need to play again from the very start. And the reason for this is if you die reliably six minutes into the game, do you want to pay one coin to die again in two minutes? Or do you want to play for another six minutes while developing more familiarity with the start of the game and everything leading up to your death? Fundamentally, single-player arcade games are about finding the balance between simple enough mechanics to attract people to come and play it, giving you enough of a taste in the first level and a half for you to want to play more of that game, and then immediately getting to testing your your mastery of those simple mechanics in tense situations that build up over the course of the game. That is the recipe to a good arcade game. Now, the games are just one aspect of the whole arcade scene. There's also the community. Uh, You might be playing these games by yourself, but there's still a community inherent in playing an arcade. There's a lot you can learn from watching higher skill players while waiting for your turn on the cabinet, like positioning and pathing in shoot-em-ups. You can see some, if you keep getting killed by the same bullet every time you do this one boss, you can see how other people dodge that bullet and voila, you might be able to internalize that and then do better at the game next time. Sometimes you run into the same people day day by day and you make acquaintances and friends, which is cool when it happens. Let's not forget high score leaderboards. It offers auxiliary progression for people who have already beaten the game. If you want to keep playing it because you like the game that much, uh, you have a limited amount of slots on each machine. And if you get one of those slots, you become micro famous in that arcade. Many arcades in Japan have this notion of community notebooks for various games where people can leave tips, messages, and fan art for other players in that arcade to enjoy. These are a ton of fun whenever you see them in Japan. Fun fact, one of the earliest instances of this was the 1984 game Tower of Druaga by Namco. Uh, It was a game sort of like Pac-Man mixed with Zelda. Uh, where you had to get through basically 60 floors of Pac-Man mazes, except there was a weird puzzle on each floor to move on to the next floor. And these were really weird things, like maybe press all of the buttons on the arcade cabinet at the same time for no reason, or weird shit like that. Uh, So they put a notebook on the cabinet, and people wrote down their discoveries in the notebook, and the next player would try to advance the collective understanding of the 60-floor tower until somebody was able to beat the game. It was the first time that this really happened in an arcade setting, and people have continued that for a bunch of other kinds of games since then. So those are a bunch of aspects as to why arcade single-player games are really cool. How does this carry over to modern gaming? Well, unfortunately, very few modern games test skill in a similar way as arcade games. The closest comparison, and I know I'm going to get shit for saying this, is Dark Souls. Dark Souls is something I would consider to be a high-difficulty quote, harsh but fair game that tests your mastery over time. Uh, The catch, though, is that instead of being a 25-minute long game, it is a 40-hour long game. Big difference. Uh, Whoa. And, like, if you speedrun Dark Souls, I think it's still, like, two hours long. And probably longer than that if you don't use any glitches and stuff. Uh, So it's not the kind of thing where you can just sit down in one sitting and Dark Souls the entire thing uh, if you're really, really good at Dark Souls. So I wouldn't really put it in the category of arcade games, really. And unfortunately, the kinds of games that are loved in the arcade do poorly at home. People generally do not want to pay $60 for a 25-minute game that will take them three months to beat. 
And if anything, people are more open to spending $60 on a 25-minute game where they just walk around and experience a story than they are to spending $60 on an arcade game. The first generation of 3D consoles really shifted the focus of video games on consoles from arcade-like games, almost out of necessity due to hardware limitations, as I mentioned earlier, to slower-paced narrative-driven games. This is part of the reason why I didn't like the N64, because there's not much arcade games on there. Seriously? Seriously? I had to do it. Oh. <laughs> okay, where's the end call button? End call. All right, so while we're fighting, let's talk about fighting games. Uh, <laughs> oh. So one of the things that really stands out about fighting games is open competition. I'm going to call it like this because I don't know what else to call it. And that is the concept of anybody can participate, but the skilled and the dedicated are rewarded. When you're playing fighting games in an arcade, it takes only a dollar to participate. But the winner keeps playing, and that means if you're very good, that dollar can go a very long way. Fighting games, much like the games we just talked about, single-player games, are about refining your skill over a long period of time. But in this case, the difficulty wall you're facing isn't meticulously developed, uh, designed by a game developer, but rather it's decided by the strength of your human opponents, which is what can make it somewhat intimidating. So focusing on offline a little bit first... Um, Large chain arcades do not run tournaments much anymore, especially not for fighting games. Uh, by this, I mean Round 1, Club Sega, all of those big chains. Like Nowadays, you're sort of lucky if they even have fighting games. Uh, the fact that Street Fighter is no longer available in the arcade sort of gives that scene a big blow. Uh, they're still like Arc System Works games and Tekken and all that stuff, but Street Fighter pulling out is still a significant thing. Fighting game communities form organically in arcades by hearing where the strongest players are hanging out by word of mouth. And then that arcade becomes a meeting spot for that game's communities. And if they're smart, the arcade owners are going to take advantage of that and cater to that community by holding tournaments for that game. So some of the small independent arcades that are still alive today manage to survive because they are the hotspot for a given game's community in that city. Like there is an arcade in Tokyo that is the Street Fighter Third Strike uh, hotspot, and there's another one, which is a Virtual Fighter hotspot. And many games, if they have scenes that are big enough to sustain that kind of community, have their hotspot within the city that all of the good players go to, and that is sort of where all of the activity happens. It feels to me that they emulate... I don't know who emulated whom first, but it feels to me that they play the same strategy as uh, obby game shops, Right. Where they would end up like, where the place you were going to play Magic the Gathering in Tuavia, right? They would, that is part of the business of this hobby shop, making sure that players of card games are coming in the shop playing tournament and also buying new products. Yep, and what's going to be very interesting is in Tuavia, there's going to be L'Imaginaire in a month, uh, which is going to be opening at uh, the Mall L'Imaginaire in town. And what's potentially going to be very interesting is one of the things I dislike about the scene we have in Trois-Rivières is that a lot of the players are focused on a format that I'm not interested in playing. So now it's possible that Imagine I, which is generally more focused on more competitive formats and less casual formats, they're going to hold different kinds of events than the other shop does, and that might mean that I would be more motivated to go to uh, Imagine I than I am to go to Gamer's Spot. So it's the same kind of idea. If I'm interested in playing 
standard or modern or popper, I could go to one shop. And if I want to play commander, I could go to another and everybody's happy because they're offering similar but different things. Same goes for fighting games. Now let's talk about North America. In North America, the fighting game scene has revolved around console versions of fighting games for the last 20 years or so. And the reason for this is lack of availability of arcade hardware. And besides, uh, console versions in recent years have been quite faithful to the arcade releases anyway, so it's not really worth the expense of like $5,000 for an arcade board when you can get the game for 60 bucks at the store. And I mean, good chances it's probably going to be on sale on PSN sometime this month for $12.49 anyway. Uh, so there's much less of an incentive to actually buy arcade hardware unless you are a fan of collecting arcade hardware. Yeah, at this point, you can just buy uh, one of those uh, fighting uh, controller, and this is where you will spend big bucks to get a good one, but not, without having the whole arcade uh, material and hardware. Yeah, and like if you buy the arcade board, you're probably going to spend like $2,000 on a shitty PC probably, because that is generally what <laughs> arcade hardware is nowadays. Um, and if you want the whole cabinet, you're going to be spending much more than that. If you buy a premium fighting controller uh, fighting stick it's going to cost you probably $300 at most so you're still saving a lot of money the difference is of course that each player is going to buy his or her own stick whereas usually when you go to an arcade it's owned by the arcade obviously so you only have to make your $1 investment so the cost of getting into fighting games is greater now than it used to be if you're just a player but as an event organizer, it costs much less to actually get set up. So EVO is the most prestigious fighting game tournament. It's held every year in August. Uh, it just happened recently. And it's a completely open tournament that accepts as many entrants for a game as there are people who show up. Uh, which means in recent years, it has been absolutely insane. Uh, last year, Street Fighter was like one of... the I think it was the largest year of Street Fighter ever. Uh, this year, Dragon Ball Fighters actually took over uh, as the top game, which is very interesting. Uh, it's interesting to see sort of the politics of the fighting game scene happen with various game developers uh, because Street Fighter had a relatively bad PR year uh, in the last year because of various game balance changes and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see like even the numbers of people signing up for each event switching as well. Um, and what's really great about Evo is no matter if you're a random nobody or the best player in the world, there are no shortcuts. Everybody plays through the same structure, uh, same tournament structure, and everybody has the same chance to make it to finals, provided they are skilled enough to beat everyone else. This is where I make the comparison to esports, uh, because fighting games have sort of managed to keep a healthy distance away from the whole esports machine. Uh, they've managed to keep a grassroots community-run feel, and even the most famous players remain relatively modest in comparison to other games where top players behave like snobby celebrities a lot of the time. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Turner Broadcasting, uh, the people who have the TBS television channel in the US, uh, tried to bring their big esports e-league to Street Fighter, which was very interesting because e-league is invitational so they basically took i think 32 of the best players in street fighter and invited them to a tournament and there was a lot of bitching in the community that it wasn't an open tournament that anybody can participate in um, and in general other esports sort of behave as this invitational or sometimes even like a uh, franchise-based 
teams uh, approach. And there's sort of less of that in the fighting game scene where, like, first of all, it's not a team game. It's an individual game, but there are still teams who sponsor individual players and all that stuff. I don't want to get too far into that, but it's just interesting that a lot of esports share a common identity when it comes to how tournaments are structured and how sponsorships work and how prizes work. And fighting games manage to keep away from all of that by being mostly community run. And it's very interesting. And aside from just like people who want to grind tournaments, there's also just people who want to play for fun. And despite online being available in modern fighting games, many still choose to go to weekly community meetups and face off against local players offline. So the arcades might be dead, but people still bring their consoles to one shared place and play fighting games together because that is the closest thing we have to arcades in the year of our Lord 2018. So that takes over the offline aspect. What I think really interesting is that I think arcades have, uh, the fighting game scene has gained a lot from online, the addition of online, because online is the infinite arcade. There is no shortage of players looking to fight other players online. There's no real geographical boundaries. I mean, like, yes, there is, for fighting games in particular, there is a bigger penalty if you are further away from other people. But in the grand scheme of things, there's enough players in your geographical area to actually make it work out. Um, there's ranked multiplayer, which means the games are trying to actively match you against other players that you have a 50% chance of beating instead of putting you at the unpredictability of the arcade where you might be facing off against the best player in your city 100% of the time because they're always on the cabinet. And since they never lose a game, they keep staying on the cabinet. And then if you want to play at all, you have to play against them. So ranked multiplayer gives you a must, much greater chance of playing players at your level and also playing different people in general. Because of that, you grind your way up to people at your skill limit and then you hit that wall where you are basically at the height of your level and then you have to gradually grind to get up higher than that. Like I said, Netplay has gotten good enough in many games to have little effect on playability. In fact, many games design a delay into the offline game as well just so that the game feels more consistent when you play online, which is very cool. Uh, although there will always be people who bitch because people who only play at offline tournaments are like, now there's a two-frame delay that's permanent to the game and it's not as responsive. And I totally understand that. But I think the majority of players benefit more from that two-frame delay than the small, small percentage of people who are tournament grinders. And what's really cool about the online multiplayer is this keeps the arcade experience in big quotes accessible to players in cities that are too small to have their own fighting game scene. And as I mentioned earlier, this is also the case in arcades, because in Japan, there's probably not enough players in your local community to actually sustain local multiplayer within the arcade. So now you can do online multiplayer in games like Tekken or Street Fighter 4 or Blaze Blue or whatever. And it's really cool that the uh, possibility is there. It's also kind of sad because it was cooler when you were facing off against actual humans that you could actually look at after you got creamed by them. And here I don't actually have to say anything about how we need to change gaming to actually preserve these things because it's pretty much preserving itself right now. The fighting game community is still very vibrant. The fighting game community almost died back before Street Fighter 4 came out because there was such a long gap between Street Fighter 3 and Street Fighter 4 that it felt like the biggest player in fighting games just pulled out of the market entirely and there weren't very good competitors at the time. So it's sort of 
drained all of the energy out of the scene at that point. And in recent years, like I've said, like Street Fighter V has been a relative failure for Capcom compared to what they were expecting. So a lot of other competitors have had, frankly, better games and they have elevated the scene to a point where they are now better than Capcom and it's Capcom's turn to sort of catch up to those people and hopefully make better games soon. Who knows if they will? Maybe they'll just say, not enough money left in this business and we're pulling out. But that'll be in a couple of years probably uh, if it's going to happen. So that is more or less everything I have about uh, keeping the spirit of the arcade alive. Uh, the reason I had this episode planned in the first place is because I am trying to evolve my home gaming setup so that it is more like an arcade cabinet because I want to play more uh, arcade style games on my PS4 and on my other consoles. Uh, so I'm thinking about investing in a better fight stick because right now the one I have is like a $40 piece of trash. Like I knew it was a $40 piece of trash when I bought it, but that's because I wasn't sure if I was necessarily going to play that many games with it and I didn't want to yeah. overspend. It was good enough for the users you were planning to do. Right, but now I want to buy like more fighting games, more shoot 'em ups more games that feel better with an arcade controller. So I think I should go to that next step and buy an actual like premium game controller and probably I should get it as universal as possible so that if I add more consoles to my setup I don't need to buy additional controllers for each console because right now I have like two sticks uh, for various systems and I would like to consolidate that all down to one really nice stick it would be really cool uh, I bought speakers this week and I set them up last night so that I can actually listen to the great music that's in these games, not necessarily through a headset 100% of the time or through those shitty monitor speakers and all that stuff. So yeah, in general, it's just because, like I said at the top of the show, I really miss arcades. Uh, I was really spoiled in Japan when I could go to them every single day and they were not very far and there were many of them. There were not as many as, let's say, five years ago when I went to Japan in the early years. But... There are still enough for it to be interesting. The problem is I don't know how many years are left for that scene to keep interesting, and I'm trying to preserve that experience as much as possible in my own gaming setup. And doing so made me think about all of the values that went through designing these arcade games, and that's what gave you the episode today. Any questions? Not really, to be honest. I'm still surprised that the uh, arcade market is still thriving in japan and it's good yeah, and but i think in the last time you had an episode about arcade i think he was around the time where everybody was closing down their arcades like the, all the big like the big gear where every, everybody was closing down so it was more than like everybody's freaking out a year yeah i think that was like three years ago when they had 300 or so arcades closed in one year and just to give like an idea, the biggest arcade chain in Japan is Round 1. They have about 300 arcades total in the chain. So it's like if all of the Round 1 network shut down in a year. Yeah, it's a, one of the big play one of the big player in the market that will just shut down. That's crazy. And like if I'm being I, I don't know how many arcades there are in all of Japan. I haven't done the math, but let's say like that year maybe a quarter of arcades in Japan closed. Like that gives you a general idea of how many shut down and most of them were small independent arcades which means like now chains are pretty much all that's left with a few exceptions here and there like my arcade in yokohama 
either they are doing some sketchy shit on the side, which is entirely possible <laughs> given the neighborhood it's in, or they are just very lucky to have a very dedicated user base because generally, like I, I look at that arcade and I have no idea how it's still in business, to be honest. Um, and a lot of the arcades in that neighborhood have shut down or downsized significantly. Like um, there were three additional arcades in the neighborhood that I stay in in Yokohama that have shut down since I've started going there. And one of them is less than half the size it was before because they shut down an entire floor of it. It used to, it used to be two floors and now it's one floor, but a smaller portion of the floor. And the other part has been like sectioned off, um, which is sad because it used to be much cooler and it used to have more games that I liked. And now it's just sort of weird stuff. Uh, another thing, uh, Akihabara, which is like the big arcade district in arcade and nerd stuff district in Tokyo. Uh, we went there this year and the club Sega, one of the club Segas, because there are like six club Segas in Akihabara. So it's hard to keep track of which one, but, uh, the one that my friend used to work at had a ton of retro games last time I went. And in the last year and a half, they got rid of all their retro games and they said, no, we can no longer justify the presence of these games. So basically there was the last super hang-on cabinet that was in working condition at that arcade. Who knows where it went? Um, and there were a lot of really cool, rare games there that you basically can't find anymore uh, because that was the last big place that had them. Now you basically have to scour all of Japan at random tiny arcades to try and find these games. Uh, that held onto them for however many years. It's really weird to see like that entire culture vanish. Um, game stores are also vanishing, uh, but at a lesser rate. In general, like it's just going to be consolidated into the big chain arcades and the big chain electronic stores. And game stores and arcades are slowly vanishing off the map. And it's kind of worrisome as a gamer to see all of that stuff wind up at eBay at extraordinary prices uh, instead. And that's just a general problem. Like there, for many years, people have been saying like foreigners go to Japan and buy all of the used Japanese games and then they bring them back to their country. And then all of those games are outside of the Japanese used game ecosystem. And it sucks if you're a Japanese person, because sometimes if you want to buy certain games, the only copies you can find are on eBay shipped from the United States or whatever. And it's really strange. So yeah, I don't want to keep this diversion going on too long, but yeah, it's, it's kind of sad right now for the gaming community to see like their culture slowly disappear out of uh, Japan. And especially if you're an arcade gamer, there's no real recourse for you. Like you've got, well, luckily for you, if you're an arcade gamer, the switch is getting a lot of arcade ports, but that is about all the good news there is nowadays. Yeah. The main reason why I was bringing that up was it feels to me, I, I always felt unclear to me, whether if it was the market reacting, uh, re- reacting to, less user being like uh less arcade players or just that it's reacting to something external where the amount of people going to those arcades didn't change i would be surprised if it didn't change and now they're fully downsizing the whole japanese market the big catalyst seems to have been mobile games Mm, mobile games are destroying everything they're destroying console gaming they're destroying uh, arcade gaming, it's sort of having a huge impact on the entire business. Like, ar- arcade ports used to reliably sell about 10,000 copies. 
now you're sort of lucky if they sell 3,500 copies because like in general, there has been a huge downsizing in the numbers that games sell in Japan just because everybody's spending their money on gacha games on their phone, uh, whether it's loot boxes or PNGs of pretty girls or whatever that they're buying with in-app purchases. Uh, like that is where people are putting their money for gaming instead of putting it in arcades or putting it elsewhere, which is nuts to me because these games basically have practically no gameplay uh it's really just like spend money to collect pngs of cute girls um but i guess that's what people want to spend their money on nowadays like it's not up to me unfortunately how people spend their money but yeah that seems to have been like what happened to accelerate really the downsizing of arcades uh i know more arcades have started putting up like if you are in here please do not play mobile games while you are here because it's like disrespectful to be actively hurting the business while you're in the arcade or whatever yeah yeah i see what you mean it's kind of like don't bring your own food to a restaurant it's like <laughs> yeah 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 huh that's quite interesting and a bit sad because uh, i do hope that the japanese arcade market will won't end up like ours where uh like you mentioned uh there's uh one arcade downtown and it's been a while since i've been so i'm not sure if it's still open uh, it's close to the montreal downtown apple store so maybe next time i go to apple store I'll just like wander to the next block and see if it's still open but it, it is the, the cheesy north american uh, arcade place where either it's like some of those where you go in the amusement parks like i guess the, the other the other one i know in montreal is the one inside the amusement park and it's just like cheesy north american arcade games where it's like either shitty fight uh, shitty shooters or some poor really bad racing games or hunting games truck driving games like i don't know how i'm not sure if it's new arcade or just like stuff that is still working from the 2000s it's never clear to me but usually i'm okay and i'm good i might be lucky and get an initial d machine but usually i'm always able to find a time crisis (laughs) it's always nice because uh yannick have experienced me being a hypnotized by time uh, time crisis and then spending too much money yep but yeah so i do hope that for the japanese market that won't happen because i do feel that it is nice to play uh arcade games and especially it brings a different gaming experience and for that type of gaming to completely go away will will be quite sad actually uh one last data point before i leave i don't have the actual numbers in front of me but i do remember that uh for a number of years, I went to the Japanese Amusement Expo, which is basically the arcade trade show every year uh, where they announce new games, although there were barely any new games announced in the last couple of years I went. Uh, and in general, it's just like a convention that a lot of, let's be honest, music gaming fans, because music gaming fans are pretty much the only people keeping the market alive right now. Um, <laughs> it's basically just like events featuring various artists from your favorite music games uh which was great i got to meet the person that this podcast is named after there a couple years ago and all that stuff but yeah so like every year they post the number of people who went to the convention and the last one i went to was the first one where the numbers were down actually no it's the year after the last one i went and so what happened after that is they decided well, it's embarrassing to have the numbers go down. So let's just merge with the, it, it's sort of like a, it's sort of a mix between like a let's players convention 
it, where like all of the YouTubers and the Nico Nico Doga people meet up and play video games live on stage together, which is kind of a cool concept for for a thing as long as you like the people who are actually on stage. Uh, Japanese Let's Players tend to be very polarizing, but there are some pretty chill ones as well. And there's some esports stuff in there as well. Um, and yeah, they merged the two conventions together because they were like, well, it's too embarrassing to have like this arcade scene convention like in the corner slowly withering away. So let's put something big next to it so that it looks more popular. But yeah, it, it, I think the numbers have been down for just the arcade portion like ever since, uh, which is unfortunate, but not too surprising. And to be honest, Konami is really fucking up with their music games right now. Uh, Sega is kicking their ass in music games. Capcom has exited the music gaming market because it wasn't working well enough for them. And Taito is technically making music games, but they're not very good. So all of that is sort of factoring into music games are the biggest chunk of the market right now, and they are not doing great either. So just some more data. But that's all I have. Good. Want to find all the show notes for this episode and maybe try to find an arcade close to your place and go play some arcade there to help them survive. Yannick will put some uh, recommendation from his favorite one in Japan. I'm sure he will. If they're still open. <laughs> if they're still open. But uh, a month ago, they were still open, right? That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I know it doesn't mean anything. One year, so, I came but... back from Japan and like three weeks later, my main arcade in Yokohama closed. So I had to find a oh. new one the next time. Oh, yeah, but hopefully they are still open and you'll be able to find links to them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 95. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can find the show at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. If you want to follow Yannick and see which arcade places are closing in japan you can find him at sakurina s-a-k-u-r-i-n-a although if you're interested in arcades closing go follow 2dx underscore close on twitter which is an account which only posts arcades that are closing down and photos of the sign that says that they're closing down which is very depressing you can find them yeah it's kind of a depressing account (laughs) it used to be just places with beatmania but now i think there's not enough places closing down with Beatmania cabinets, so it's just all the arcades. Uh, you can find them at IIDX underscore close. Yeah, I'm sure you'll put the link in the show notes. Yep. And you can find myself on Twitter at Lukonush. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.